Some days, it feels like we're drowning in data. But data isn't knowledge. Data without context or the expertise to understand it is just something taking up space in your warehouse. That's where being insights-driven comes in. Insights-driven organizations focus on generating actionable insights rather than just collecting and munging data. Insights drive better decisions. Welcome to the Insights Factor. Thank you for joining us. My name is Ian Cook. I'm the CTO here at Seek. Joining us today is Anna Murao. She's the Global Customer Journey and CRM Senior Manager at Stanley Black & Decker. It is a huge pleasure to have you here. I want to say thank you for your time and looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me. Absolutely. So give me a brief description of what your position is right now and what is it you do with data every day? So my current position um, pretty much is centered around acquiring and activating end-user data for Stanley Black & Decker. In this case, it's the data of the person who actually purchases the tools at our distributors or retailers. We often talk about a lot of different kinds of data, zero-party data, first-party data, third-party data. When you talk about end-customer data, where does that fit in? So in our case, it's pretty much zero and first-party data. It's about going out there and asking the end user to please sign up with us, to please give us some information so that we can improve their digital experience with us in our channels. So that's the foundation of our database at this point. And for Sunny Black & Decker, it's the first time, really, the company is really getting to know the end user. Stanley Black & Decker is a B2B2C company, and usually in these cases, the B, the first B company, doesn't have the information on the C and at the end, on the consumer at the end, so, because Stanley Black & Decker sells to uh, Home Depot, and then Home Depot sells and has it. But Black & Decker is starting to go more direct. What is inspiring uh, Black & Decker to want to know more directly about the customer? No, it's not about going directly. It's about being able to generate demand on behalf of our distributors and retailers. So the more ah, we okay. know the end user, the better we can generate that demand on behalf of our customers, the home depots of the world, the Amazons of the world. And the more we can tap into this data in order to create new products, to focus groups, really get to know that end user that we haven't known before. So this process of collecting data is new to Black & Decker. Have you been um, working to set this process up? Is this a, a big step for the company in terms of an undertaking, in terms of getting all of that data and all of the right people to do this work? Yeah, so this is a newer process for us, even though we have been collecting like product registration data for a while. But the difference here is that we are collecting data from different sources of data, ingesting that data and unifying it so that we can know that Ian first signed up with us via DeWalt website. And then six months later, he registered the first product and then four months later, the second product. And then we can start having that 360 view, degree view of the end user. So in our case, it's not only about getting the latest behavior and optimizing for the latest behavior. No, it's about having a healthy mix of attributes and behaviors 
Again, those attributes will be self-reported by our end users. And then the behaviors will be put together with this attribute so that we can have this more holistic view of the end user. Oh, that's terrific. Now, Stanley uh, is a fairly large company. So for this to be kind of new, have you had to help educate people on the value of doing this? Or did the company just immediately know this is something we need to be doing and they got behind the initiative from the start? I think it's both, actually. I was part of um, a group inside Stanley that took care of what we now call the global emerging markets, the legacy global emerging markets. So I, I was reporting to the president of that division, and that division includes countries in Latin America, Asia, Middle East, and Africa. And that leadership saw the importance of investing in this, so they got started. They were the leaders, the pioneers, so to speak. But even within that group, we had to do a lot of educational efforts in order to really explain, because at the beginning, it may seem like, you know, those are not our customers, so to speak. They don't buy in bulk. So why should we be doing this? But then you start building the database, you start activating the database, you start taking more people to our partners e-commerce presence. And that's when mm -hmm. our business stakeholders start seeing the benefit because then you go negotiate with your e-commerce partner and there's something that you can bring to the table. Sure. And, and now we are expanding to our other markets as well, other regions, but that's pretty much how it goes. We need some um, sponsorship from our leadership. Sure. And then you start showing the results and pe more people get on board and then you don't need to convince people as much anymore. That's terrific. There's a lot of things in what you just said. One thing I would like to pick up is you said activating the database. This is something that I see in marketing terms in things where people are saying, oh, you have data, you need to activate the data. What does activating the database mean for you? Yes, that's a very good point. In here, in this context, activating means using for communication. So in the case of Stanley Black & Decker, we do a lot of email marketing. So an activation may look like, okay, we, the data is now ready to be sent to our email marketing platform. And when they hit the email marketing platform, then it, it triggers a series of automated journeys like welcome workflow, et cetera. So that's what I mean by activation. Um, we also activate our end users via um, landing page personalization, Via, we, we also use data to better refine segments on paid media campaigns so that we can tell uh, Facebook or Google, like, well, I want to find people like this, but not exactly these people because they're in the, in the database, right? Of course, we follow um, the legal directions for the different markets we have, but wh whatever we can, we also... We, activate our data in that sense where it helps us better manage our paid media campaigns and um, decrease our cost per action or cost per click. Oh, fantastic. So is your team the one directly responsible for building that database, bringing in the data, making it work and live in that database so that it's accessible to others? Or are you mostly on a consuming end of data? Actually, I work on both. So we have different teams that work together. For Big that. job. So it's, well, yes, it's a mix of technical and business stakeholders. I mm -hmm. personally, in my career, I ended up, I started with digital marketing and then I ended up on 
data operations and marketing operations actually to feed the marketer in me because I wanted to have nice reports where I could analyze and and have um, action items. And I couldn't get that myself. So I started really getting more involved on the day-to-day of operations to make sure that the data would be clean, the report would be there, all that stuff. So now I sit reading the interception. That is not a common place to be. Getting to that point is not something you see in a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. It's like I'm a little unicorn of sorts. Um but but in my case, it really gives me a, a very nice perspective, right? So number one, I am analytical. So working with technical people, working the operations, understanding how the data comes, it I like it. It's the kind of, inform- of discussion, conversation, information that I like to have. So it, it ends up putting me in this position where I'm really in the intersection of the business stakeholders and the technical stakeholders. So that allows me to be the translator. And that's a, a, a nice spot that I like very much. So I can translate technical terms to business stakeholders. And I can also bring business objectives to technical stakeholders who are usually very, they are usually outside. They're usually not part of understanding the strategy or knowing their strategy, what they're working for. Yeah, that's one of the things we run across very frequently is that the data people, as well-meaning as they might be, just might not have that business context. What are some examples of cases where you've had to like work with them to bring that kind of business perspective and translate into that into the to the data language? Oh, everything. From the way that we ingest and digest data and unify it. Because when you bring data to a place like a CDP, a database, like a customer data platform, right? mm-hmm. a de facto database for marketing, you bring the data from different sources. Then you have to start deciding which data source has the preference. So if we have data from two different data sources, how do we prioritize? Is it because of the timestamp or is there a source of data that is more important than others? For instance, in our case, data from product registration may trump data from a marketing campaign because when people are registering products, they give more information. For a specific use or just in general? For in general, right? So let's say we have data from Ian and we have data from product registration and we have data from a marketing campaign. And the data from product registration has your occupation. The data from the marketing campaign does not. So let's make sure that we bring both together. Or maybe we have occupation on the marketing campaign data that is different from the product registration. In this case, which one should we use? In the case of product registration, because there are benefits to the end user of giving that data because of the product registration, we usually find it to be higher quality. Same with data from Zendesk, from customer service. In those cases, we had those discussions. And then what I would do is I would have these discussions with the data the data operations people and with the business stakeholders. Because the business stakeholders also had to understand that's how we are ingesting data. Makes sense. Is that the way we want to do it? Before we had the CDP, we didn't have uh, data governance, data management. So we had right. data fields with open, open-ended fields and people would type whatever. So we had... When it comes to like occupation, we had many, many answers. So we had to clean 
and we had to decide. So if you have engineer spelled out in five different ways, or if you have a chemical engineer and a construction engineer, do you put every, everyone under engineer? Do you separate? And a lot of those discussions were actually guided by how we're going to activate, how we're going to use this data for communication. Because that's the most important piece here. Yeah, that's terrific. There are points in past projects that I was working on because I would do a lot of uh, what at the time we called entity resolution, meaning you'd have Anna's information from data set A, Anna's information from data set B, and we wanted to make sure that it was the same person so that we don't either double market to the person or have incorrect information. It's so crucial then that you'd have that business insight to say, well, one of these sources, there's a positive benefit to this person writing down their occupation. It should trump what I have in my other data set, in which case it was just either inferred from some other information that was given, or it's a drop down that might not have had the right category. So they picked the closest thing. Um, we were just trying to do it in like in mass on a very large scale, but this really highlights that power of having someone who understands the business side of these things. So like you said, in your career, you've been in this translator role. That's really fascinating. So you've been talking um, business information to the data people. What about going the other direction? Is it hard sometimes to talk data to the more of the business side of the house? Or have we seen a growth in sort of data savviness across companies? I think I see a growth in data savviness, especially from maybe the my younger co-workers the ones that are more <laughs> connected to digital, digital marketing. Um, but I still have older co-workers or more traditional marketers, so to speak. And in those cases, we need to really educate them. I think that the biggest paradigm shift, if I may say, if I may use the words, is that the understanding that data is very strategic and that our data must belong to us and if it's strategic and if it must belong to us, we need to take ownership. And take ownership means understanding why we are collecting those data points, making sure that we collect in the proper way, that the data comes clean to the CDP, because there's no technology out there that can understand different names for the same data source in different languages, right? There's no way. We're not there yet. So even with a, um, a very powerful platform like a CDP, you need to feed the CDP the right diet because otherwise the CDP <laughs> won't function. Yes. The CDP will get like constipated and the data won't make its way out. <laughs> <laughs> if I may use the the crude <laughs> metaphor. I think that's terrific. I there have been plenty of times where I've I've seen precisely that as the wrong thing went in and it's not even that you get the wrong thing out, you just get nothing back out. Exactly. So that was, I think, the most challenging part, saying, you know what, it's not. Don't outsource that to agencies. Don't outsource that to other people. No, own it and I'll help you. I'll be reviewing all this with you. I'll be in all the calls you need me, but we will own this, the data and the, the governance as well. That's terrific. Not a lot of people who come from a business side immediately gravitate towards data. At what point in your career did you say, I really need to understand this data more and I really need to dig into that side of it? Like, when did you go from somebody who did some, did marketing and had data that you probably looked at to somebody who really is working with data and is now leading this team to help build this data? So I have to say it's a, it was a process. So first of all, like full 
disclaimer here, I am an economist by training. Ah, so you started with data right away. So, yeah. So I, I like data. I like to kind of think about complex systems and how you break it down into smaller pieces. So that has been my jam. But I ended up going to marketing first, but digital marketing from the beginning. And digital marketing because you could measure. My first entrance into the data side was really through web analytics. So the first back then was, okay, I need to understand who is visiting the site. I need to see if I can segment. Does that make sense? Yes, no. So that's when I started. And then I went through, because I've always worked with digital marketing, but on a more um, like a manager position. So I was involved in the different aspects of digital marketing. So in each one of them, you have to go to data, see data. So how do you connect Google Ads to Google Analytics to see the whole process? So I have always been involved in that. And then as my career progressed, I started being more involved in the CRM part of it. And that's when I started to really move towards, okay, so we're collecting attributes, behaviors, how that works. And I started really going more into that area. Fantastic. One of the things we're interested in at Seek is this idea that insights end up being more useful than just raw data. The data that people can dump into a lake house or whatever you have ends up being a lot that you can't process until you've filtered it. What kind of process do you go through to work with the data you've got to make sure that the business side gets the insights it needs? That's a very good point. So I work very closely with our business stakeholders to understand which KPIs they're looking for, what type of data they need. And then I work with the data operation side to make sure that the data set is prepared accordingly. And then that data set is sent to the analytics team that then prepares that data in a um, data visualization tool like Power BI, Datorama, et cetera. That's the process and it's reviewed periodically. Okay. When uh, we start talking about this data, one of the things you've mentioned is that you're collecting direct data directly from consumers. This does start touching on questions of privacy. How do you address that? And, and is that a big part of what you are concerned with when you do this kind of work? Absolutely. Big part. And part of my work is really interface with our global data privacy team, right? Is our legal team. The one that takes care of making sure that everything's okay. So we review a lot of those processes, data governance processes with them. Another thing that I did that may sound weird, but I read our global privacy policy from end to end because, and actually I recommend all marketers or anyone involved in customer data to read that because that's pretty much a covenant of sorts that explains to the end user, how is it that we are going to use the data? Why are we asking for the data we are asking? So in our case, we make it very clear that we ask for data so that we can improve their experience with us. So that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. So whenever we are discussing with business stakeholders about new data points to collect, the first question I have for them is, do you have content or will you have content to activate against this new data point you want to collect? Because if you don't, if we're collecting data and we are not going to use to improve the customer, the end user experience, let's not collect it. 
because it's going against our own data privacy policy. Let's not collect now. When we are ready to use, to improve the experience, then yes, let's go. So the what we call mm-hmm. the, the data template is a living document for us. So it, we must follow it, mm-hmm. but it's not strict and it's not static. It may change because we may come up and say, you know what, we have new content. Let's go and collect more data that will help us improve the experience. So yes, let's go. The, the MarTech stack is flexible enough to allow us to move quickly in that sense. That's the beauty of it as well. But we need to make sure that we're ready to use it to improve the experience. So those are the type of discussions that we have on an ongoing basis. Do you have the same considerations or concerns when bringing in not just data you've collected from individuals, but other data sources? Or or do you collect a lot of data from other, say, third parties in the whole world of zero party, first party, second party, third party? Are you collecting, purchasing, bringing in data much from third parties? No, no, not at this point. I would say no. What we would like to do now would be to get second party data, but in clean rooms, aggregated. What are some examples of second-party data in this case? So that would look like us scrubbing our data against Home Depot's, but in a clean room. And clean room means it's... So the retailer. Exactly. So we would have an intermediary here. So Home Depot would not see our end-user data. We would not see their end-user data at all. But we would see that there is an overlap. There's an overlap between our end-user and the sale of a drill that we had online. And we can use that to then create activations inside a Home Depot website. So yeah, so let's use that data. So let me go and sell Home Depot. I want people like this one, but not exactly this one. And we can do that in in a safe way without using the, the PI, the personal identifiable information. No PII here, but we could do that. So you could activate against that by sending some marketing message, some piece of collateral, because this is the the drill, the bits, the things that you've looked at. We don't know who you are. You're That's left with Home Depot, but we have the information on what you're interested in. So let's connect the chain through, as you mentioned, a data clean room, which if uh, some of our listeners haven't quite um, worked with yet, is this kind of concept where you can bring data from two different parties Neither one of the other parties can see the data the, the other party brought. So you don't see Home, Home Depot's data. Home Depot doesn't see your data, but it does find its connection within that clean room and then pushes out what each side is allowed to see for, like you said, activations, which is a really interesting kind of new step I've seen grow recently. Um, sounds like you're already at the point where you're using it quite a bit. No, actually, we're getting started. So we are in the. Oh, terrific. Just starting on the journey. So you have big plans for that. Um, what other kind of big trends are you seeing in the world for data for your kind of um, purposes? I would say that the first trend that I see, it's really um, a change towards data privacy. So what I see are different countries being more strict, first and foremost. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to be as proactive as possible in that sense which is why, and that's my professional opinion here beyond Stanley Blackenbecker, but that's why I think it's better to invest more in zero and first-party data. And then the second-party data via clean rooms, then depending on 
third-party data because that's the one that will go away eventually, right? And we're seeing that horizon getting closer to us. So that's number one. How do we make our data privacy, our processes as compliant as possible, even if a country doesn't require it? How can we over-deliver? Because when the country requires it, we're, we'll be there. We'll be okay. We won't lose data. So that's one. Right. There's the considerations in the Europe, like the GDPR, the regulations in, in California. Is it your view, just in general as an industry expert, that this type of thing is coming across a number of regions? Are we seeing a trend in this direction or do we think it's still just going to be, say, California and Europe? No, we see a trend. So, for instance, and I'm going to give a more specific example here for you to use it, but in, uh, for instance, Argentina and Abu Dhabi are two markets that consider that the data, that the data of their citizens should not be in the U.S. unless there is specific promises and concerns in data security and data privacy because they consider the U.S. to not be as careful concerning data privacy and data security as European Union, for instance. We have to have more, how can I say, we, we have to go and review our processes, right? So how do we accommodate that level, of that requirement, the two markets that are not even our biggest markets, neither of them, but we, but we do business in those markets. So we, we collect data of end users in those markets. So we have to be super compliant. So how do we deal with that? Because so... Do we leave the data here in the in under what here in the US under what circumstances? Do we send it to Europe? So those are the discussions that we need to have in, in these situations. And we have those discussions with our legal team, with our data privacy team. These become huge considerations as in data governance, as you were talking about. Who can access it? Where does it sit? Where does it can get controlled? Exactly. That is just a a large effort now, because you're not only talking about bringing all this data together. So you've started with the collection, which on its own has some roots, but collecting at a wider scale can take a lot of time. Putting it together, normalizing, standardizing that data takes a lot of effort. Then talking about who can access it, where can it go? Um, this is a, a very large sort of part of the world that Stanley um, obviously can deal with because it's it's a much larger organization. Have you seen this kind of care and time and effort being um, enacted in some of maybe your partner companies or smaller brands that um, you know of? is this Are they facing the same sort of heavy lift and heavy challenge? I can talk about our partners, to our vendors. Our vendors, they are going through that effort for sure. So we bring those topics to them. We discuss them together. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would say that other large Fortune 500 companies like Stanley Black & Decker, may be also following that route. I don't know about smaller companies, right? Because it requires a lot of lift, to be honest, to, to kind of follow all those, those trends worldwide. I think it's still a lot of lift for smaller companies. What kind of lessons do you have for those people who have to go down the path to follow after you? Just taking on this this massive task to to be working with data at this scale is there some general patterns that you've observed that have worked well for you that uh, have smoothed the road as it were 
Yes. So first of all, work closely with legal, with data privacy. Go talk to them, understand why, right? I think sometimes business stakeholders, we we see that just as the obstacle, right? Like, oh, I have to go talk to legal. But no, here is a very important aspect because they know why we're doing that. And if you go and approach them with the why you want to do what you want to do and they come to why the legislation is the, way, is the way it is, you usually find some common ground or a way of doing things that, that is compliant, 100% compliant. So that's for sure. The second is also work closely with the technical team, with the operations team. I know that for some some people that may be listening to us now or, or watching us, maybe on the business end, like business stakeholders. And I know that it may, at first, it may see like, oh, it, you know, this is just for the geeks, just for the nerds, doesn't matter to me. But actually it does matter because the way that we collect data, if we collect the data in a, the best way possible, then when the data hits, the database is already clean. It means that it's going to be ready for activation sooner, faster. You can count that on so that So there's data. a real business value in doing it. There is a real business value. Exactly. So there is a real business value in an understanding. You don't need to become an expert. You don't need to be like me leaving that intersection. But at least understanding the why and where you can help. Because there will be very specific tests where a business stakeholder can really help there. And once that is done, it's done. It's a setup and then it keeps on giving. So take the time to do that setup properly. It pays off in tenfold. Number one, number two, when you are ready to scale, when your campaign has been a success, and now you can take this campaign to other brands, other business units, etc. It will be much, much easier to scale your success as well. That's uh, a really interesting way to view this. Uh, it's a phrase I use a lot with my engineering teams, is, um, and I got it from the Navy SEALs, which is slow is smooth, smooth is fast, is take the time up front to get it right, to get it smooth, to get it clear, because later on, you'll benefit from that with speed to market, speed to delivery, speed to activation. So I appreciate that. It definitely resonates. A little different topic. In your professional description, you've described yourself as somebody who likes experimentation and using uh, incomplete data to make decisions, or maybe not likes, but needs to use incomplete data to make decisions. This is really interesting to me because this is sort of the, the almost the definition of statistics that I grew up with. How does experimentation show up in what you do during the day? So I would say I like to call myself an experimental marketer. And Experimental marketer, he is just means someone who gets the, an experimental mind frame and applies it to problem solving. So how can I understand? How can I test it? How can I use the, can get the, the minimal viable product here for testing, the minimal viable testing? How can I start small and then understand what the issue is and test against it? And then I can use those learnings and then I can scale. So it's pretty much having this idea of, okay, I'm going to build a hypothesis. I'm going to see how I'm, I'm going to test this hypothesis. I'm going to check the variables and the KPIs to test this hypothesis. And then I'm going to get the analysis of that test and then rinse and repeat as I go, as I grow my hypothesis, as I diversify my hypothesis so that I can learn more. So that's, is pretty much like the foundation when it comes to the experimental marketer. But when you also have um, 
a strong foundation in this case is a database that is properly set up and it's a database that answers marketing related questions such as a, a customer data platform when you have that and you have the data management that makes you better positioned to be experimental because then you already have that foundation that is very robust you have um what i call um customer data loop growth or data growth loop. So customer data growth loop. So you have data that comes in, new or returning customers, and then you activate them, you send messages, campaigns, etc. They engage with their messages and campaign, then you collect more data, you enrich their data, and then you use that same data to improve their experience or to do more campaigns for data acquisition. So it becomes a virtuous cycle. So when you have that and this foundation of a strong database and data management, then that's it. You are experimental. It's easy because then you can say, you know what, let's experiment here on the on the loop, on the data growth loop. Let's experiment here and here and let's see how it goes. So that's really what I meant when I said that I like to experiment with incomplete data. It's because you have to, to make it happen, you know, whatever way you can. What's so the incompleteness incomplete, there? Exactly. And the incompleteness may be in our case, for instance, um, we didn't know exactly which type of occupation data we would like to, to select and how we would activate against it. But we tested it. We did. Okay. So let's discuss here all the stakeholders involved. We did. We tested it. Oh, we saw it. It worked. Move forward. Scale. So you can do that over and over again. And the more you do it, the more you learn. And then I think as a marketer, that's the best part of the job. It's being experimented, it's learning. It's like, oh, now I understand how they do it or why they like this. And also we interact a lot with our customer insights team. And that's also very, very rich for us because this is a team that goes and does um, focus group and goes into very in-depth conversation with pockets of our end users, yes. Oh, that's interesting. When they say they're developing insights, do they come to you with an insight that they have found, or do you work with them to pull the insight out of the data they've collected? I just am interested in the fact that they call themselves an insights group. Do they deliver it? Like, here's our fresh bash of insights, or do they come to you and say, we have this new data, what kind of questions can we be asking? Both. So they come to us and say, okay, these are the insights or this is the project. This is the type of data we are trying to figure out. So they may come to us and say, you know what? We need to do a focus group. We need to do a, um, a research. Can we tap into the end user database? Yes. We have an opt-in actually for research. So we know it's easy for us to segment it and to contact these people. And they also come to us with very qualitative, like brand studies, focus groups, so they also bring, which is not at the end user level, but again, it's aggregated data that helps us better understand or at least formulate new hypotheses for us to test as well. Excellent. One thing I need to ask you absolutely because of just the hype around it is generative AI. Are you taking a look at how to use this? Is it going to be a part of your experimentation process? Absolutely. So I think it, it has a lot of applications on the experimentation, absolutely. From the simple things, A-B testing, subject, subject lines for emails and 
content that is customized by occupation, all that good stuff. But I also think that may, we may find use cases also for the data management. So make it easier for people to create tracking tags, to generate tracking tags, instead of like filling out a very long horizontal Excel spreadsheet. What if you can just like give, you know, generative AI two, three prompts and that's it. So those are the things we're also exploring at this point. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate it, Anna. There is uh, always a lot there to to be exploring and to be working on. And I want to say thank you so much for the time. Is there any uh, last thoughts or pieces of wisdom you'd like to give the audience before we let you go? Keep on testing. So make sure that you are building a strong foundation, that you have your governance or processes in place because it really builds upon itself. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Right, and will allow you to be more experimental with time. So keep on experimenting. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments for me, please feel free to check me on LinkedIn. Excellent. I'll make sure to find you there. Anna Morau, Global Customer Journey and CRM Senior Manager. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure was mine. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Seek the leader in cloud-based creation and delivery of industry-focused insights. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please feel free to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.